Hi, and welcome to Stefan Levera podcast, a show about Bitcoin and Austrian economics. Today, we're talking about Bitcoin fees. And in recent times, they have been quite low. And this has not always been the case because there have been times in Bitcoin's history when fees have been much, much higher, both in Bitcoin terms and also in fiat terms. And so we explore this with Alex Thorne. He is the head of firmware research at Galaxy Digital, and he has previously worked at Avon Ventures and also as part of the Bitcoin research team over at Fidelity. So we talk about which factors had the biggest impact. There are a range of them, SegWit, batching, Lightning Network, less op returns, less minor selling. And we talk about some of the ins and outs of these factors. So it might be interesting and educational for you. I hope you enjoy this episode. This show is brought to you by Swan Bitcoin. And what many people might not know is that Swan also has a benefit plan. This is something that you can offer as an employer, or maybe if you're an employee, you can talk to your employer and they will receive regular SATs. So this is a solid employee benefits package which can help attract and retain your talent. And so this can also help differentiate your business from competitors. So the basics of this is that it automatically deposits a set amount of Bitcoin into your team's accounts every month. And it's a great value benefit plan. It has low fees and it comes alongside Swan's incomparable service, world-class education and our vibrant community. So if you're interested, go to swanbitcoin.com slash benefit. Lend at HodlHodl is a peer-to-peer Bitcoin-backed lending platform where you can anonymously borrow stablecoins against your Bitcoin. So with Lend at HodlHodl, you no longer need to sell your Bitcoin to get some liquidity. You can borrow some stablecoins. Now, you will put up some Bitcoin. This is an over-collateralized loan-style product, and you still hold one out of three keys. So you know your coins are not being rehypothecated. With Lend at HodlHodl, all the deals are happening directly between users. So you go to the website, you can find the orders and put up the offers depending on how long you want to borrow and the interest rate you are looking to pay. So go to the website, that's lend.hodlhodl. If it is Bitcoin hardware you're looking for, go to coinkite.com. Coinkite are the creators of my favorite Bitcoin hardware wallet or signing device called the Cold Card. It comes in a little calculator-sized device and it can be used to generate and store your private keys and also sign a Bitcoin transaction when you want to spend. You can use the cold card really easily with wallets like Sparrow or Spectre or Electrum and it's really useful and versatile because you can use it both in single signature mode, multi-signature mode, you can use all kinds of different features like the Duress pin, the BrickMe pin, it has BIP85, Child Seeds, which you might have heard about on my recent episode with Bitcoin Q&A and it is just a real powerhouse. You'll learn about Bitcoin when using this. So go and get yours. Go to coinkite.com. And now onto the show with Alex. Alex, welcome to the show. Great to be here, Stefan. Really excited. Fantastic. So today we're talking about why Bitcoin fees are where they are, because I think it's quite an interesting topic for discussion. We've seen some interesting developments over the years in Bitcoin. And obviously, you uh, wrote a report on this recently. So do you want to firstly just give us a bit of, for listeners who don't know, just give a bit of a background on yourself and then uh, we can take it from there. Absolutely. So I'm Alex Thorne. I'm the head of firmwide research at Galaxy Digital. I uh, worked at Avon Ventures uh, before that, which is Fidelity's affiliated crypto and Bitcoin focused VC fund. Um, and I was director of blockchain research at Fidelity Center for Applied Technology before that. So I've been interested in Bitcoin, frankly, a lot longer than I've been actively studying it, but I've been studying it now for uh, pretty actively since 2015. And, you know, it was really, it was crazy because, you know, over in sort of early COVID, right. And, and when that, when that post March 12th, 2020 and, and fed money printing bonanza run really started and post having run really started to grow. Um, we started to see a lot of use, uh, and full blocks, a lot of mempool being full. I remember, uh, Matt O'Dell was, was joking for a while that we would never see one sat per, per byte transactions. Again, the mempool would, would never clear. And I, I agreed with that. I thought that like the amount of sustained interest was going to mean that fees were going to be high for the foreseeable future. And then, you know, something interesting happened after about May and June 2021, fees basically flatlined. It's it's essentially never been cheaper in Bitcoin terms today to transact on chain. And, and I couldn't, and I sort of wondered why that was. And I'd heard some interesting ideas. I mean, of course, you know, increased use of, of new technologies like SegWit and, and other stuff was always in the mix when we thought about why this might be. But I, I was sort of skeptical that those could really account for, for such low fees. 
and and actually blocks that really haven't been consistently full since about June 2021. But when we started looking into it, and in fact, I'd even heard rumors about miners stuffing blocks, perhaps, and that their exit from China may have ended that practice. We thought about that for a couple of days. And, it, you know, it never really on, on my research team, it just never really made sense to us. It still doesn't. So uh, we decided to go on this hunt to figure out, like, we, we said, all right, well, if it's is it Segwit? Is it Lightning? What is it? Let's look at literally everything we can think of to figure out, you know, where the demand for block space is coming from. Yeah, yeah, great. And so let's set the context a little bit because uh, in the report, you also spell out where are fees today? And let's talk about it both in fiat terms, like US dollar terms, and also in Bitcoin or Satoshi terms. Where are they roughly today? So in 2022, the mean transaction fee in sats per byte is is about one Satoshi. It's, you know, this is an average, you can't, so it's 1.03 sats. And this is the annualized, I guess, you know, year to date 2022 fee. That's about as low as it can go. In dollar terms, the mean is about $1.86 in 2022. But the means, I actually prefer the median for this because you get some, you know, really high value, you know, urgent transactions that push the average up. The the median transaction fee in dollars is is about 50 cents today. So, and that that isn't quite the lowest it's ever been, but it is the lowest. I mean, it's certainly when Bitcoin was much less valuable in fiat US dollar terms prior to, you know, 2017, it was lower <laughs> in dollar terms. But this is basically the lowest it's been since 2017 in dollar terms. And it's the lowest ever in Bitcoin terms. Right. And that's really interesting because for so long, there have been so many debates about what is the appropriate level of fee, you know, how accessible should Bitcoin be to the everyday user? And then in 2017, now that's obviously going back four or five years now, there were arguments being made that, oh, look, see, to transact on chain, it's $50. And look, to be honest, that was probably like at the very top end of the, you know, very few people were ever paying that much. And if they were, they were probably an exchange doing like a big payout, (laughs) not just like an everyday user. But it's been a big topic of discussion. And so I guess, what were the things that you were looking at as the most important factors there? Well, I mean, I I totally agree. I mean, you can't, for for the usability of a blockchain, it can't be prohibitively expensive for the users of that blockchain, right? I mean, and and so, you know, if if you want average folks to be able to send on-chain Bitcoin transactions, um, it you know, $50 is, is going to be prohibitive. It's at least going to price out a large number of use cases, right? That was the joke. I can't pay $5 in a fee or $50 for a fee. How am I going to buy my coffee with Bitcoin, right? And, you know, I, I take a little bit of umbrage with that because, you know, I, I personally don't like spend a lot of Bitcoin buying coffee because coffee is not something that I need, you know, stored in perpetuity on a global decentralized immutable ledger. Personally, that's just me. I'm open to doing it. I'm just saying it's not like my use for Bitcoin, right? But, you know, we started looking in and and we really found a couple. What I found was that right around June 2021, a bunch of big things happened in terms of network usage, right? And I don't know exactly. In some cases, I have an idea of why one of these things happened. In other cases, it's not really obvious to me why. But what I can tell you for certain is that many of these, all of which essentially reduce the use of block space through scaling, um, or changes in user behavior really spiked at the beginning of June 2021 and have remained. And, you know, I, I think we're going to go into this, but just a list here, right? SegWit adoption exploded. I mean, up 15% to its highest ever. Transaction batching, which had already been elevated um, since 2020 or so, literally spe- peaks, right, in June 2021. You know, a, a decline in the number of opportune transactions, sort of freeing up some extra block space, I mean, it had been declining for a while. It sort of peaked in mid-2019, but literally Tether finally on the Omni network basically flatlines and stops, you know, no activity there. You saw significant usage of the Lightning Network explode then. I think I have an idea of why, but just literally a giant number of channel creates start happening, right? And if we believe that people are using Lightning to send like faster, less expensive Bitcoin transactions, which I do then that can also take some burden off of the, the main chain. And then and then the miners exit from China, I think, also plays a big part and and where they ended up going, which was in, you know, eventually in large part, most of, a lot of those machines ended up in the United States. So these factors combined, right? It's like uh, it's like planet Earth, right? Like these powers combined. <laughs> 
you know, I think led, it really does paint a very clear reason why blocks have been less full. Um, and we can talk about them more. Yeah, for sure. And I think, so to the first one, as you were saying, I think SegWit was just probably the, the big factor as others, other commentators in the space, other experts, people like Merch over at Chaincode has been talking about this for a long time. I think that's probably the, the big factor, right? So do you want to tell us a little bit about what you were seeing there? And actually on the SegWit topic as well, if you could help explain are we counting SegWit here in terms of inputs to transactions or because it's also it comes down to how we're counting it, right? Because if we're counting it as in that entire transaction, if even one input was SegWit, are we counting that as SegWit or is it only where everything is SegWit, every input and output? No, I, I think for this data and, and, and on the SegWit data in the report, I really relied on, on CoinMetrics and BitMEX Research. They have a website, txstats.info, that's really good. Um, I, I think it's for any utilization of SegWit. So it's transactions that use SegWit at all. But yeah, I, so, so just as a reminder, right, for the audience, I'm sure your audience knows this well, right? SegWit uh, was an upgrade that activated in August 2017. It was sort of what came out of the multi-year block size wars when, when it all shook out. At a high level, in my view, SegWit is a really hardening and it's, a, it's an upgrade that really helps harden the protocol and compresses data. And, and I think this ends up being a really important story for Bitcoin development going forward, which is not focused on expansion and the addition of tons of new features and more focused on making transactions more compressed and making the protocol more hardened long term. Um, which, frankly, is a great differentiator between Bitcoin and other blockchain networks. So SegWit, specifically SegWit, segregates the witness data, right, SegWit, to the end of a transaction and then replaces the concept of bytes, if you think of data size, like bytes and megabytes, with virtual bytes, which is sort of a, it's essentially an artificial weight unit. And then it recalculates the weight of that now segregated signature data such that each byte of it only counts for a quarter of a weight unit. And the effect of this is ultimately that transactions that use SegWit can, can push the block size effectively over one megabyte, right? So you can pack more transactions into the block. Now, my node still has to store actual data, right? It can't do like virtual bytes. And that's why I say effectively, the more transactions that use SegWit actually can have an effective block size increase, I think ultimately pushing it theoretically if everything was SegWit to around two megabytes, but it only can go up if you use SegWit, right? I mean, you only get that weight reduction if you use SegWit. And I, I think because of its enactment, you can start to see if you look at the chart and we have this in there uh, in 2017, you actually, you start to see the actual non-virtual, the actual block size byte in bytes of Bitcoin blocks start to creep above a megabyte and they're around you know one and a half megabytes today. And, and that allows you to pack more data into a block and more transactions uh, into a block and payments, right? And so it, it's a massive scaling technology. It's a very, it, and I, I didn't mention this, but just as an aside, it also solved transaction malleability, which enabled things like the Lightning Network. But so but that's not really the focus of, well, I guess it kind of is. I mean, if it weren't for SegWit, we wouldn't have Lightning. And so, um, and that's also a factor I think at play here. But SegWit, I mean, again, when I went looking, I, I know, you know, by my recollection, I, I don't look at SegWit adoption like every day or anything, but it, it was very slow to be adopted. And, and that's because large users of Blockspace oftentimes are, you know, exchanges and they process tons of deposits and withdrawals and they have... <laughs> Many of them have other priorities, right? Because they don't necessarily, you know, it, it's a pretty good value proposition in my book to tell your users that you're going to pay lower fees if if you withdraw from us. But, you know, saving your users a buck or two versus adding random altcoins and generating all this trading volume that, you, you know, I think that's why Bitcoin development at some, but not all exchanges is slow to be adopted. But I hadn't looked in a while and then I went and looked and I found that, you know, basically through from from 2019 to, to February or even to May 2021, only about 40 to 55 percent of transactions were utilizing SegWit. And, and we didn't hit 40 percent until uh, over a year after the upgrade uh, went live. So in 2018. But if you look at the chart, just come June 2019, there's a massive spike. We're at about 50%. It ultimately jumps all the way to 83% where it is today, but jumps within a couple days to over 70%. We have almost a 20% increase in the number of the percentage of transactions utilizing this really powerful scaling technology. And, you know, that significantly reduces the, or effectively expands the block size and makes room for more transactions, 
which, you know, reduces the total, I guess, utilization of block space, right? And therefore puts downward pressure on fees. That just happened at this one point. Yeah. And with this network, because it is open, there is no top-down ruler, we can't just sort of say everyone has to go SegWit now. So the adoption is going to be slow and there will be laggards and leaders and some wallets and exchanges were very, very quick to get SegWit straight away and then others were perhaps (laughs) subject to (laughs) campaigns uh, entitled when SegWit, right? And perhaps that is also one of the reasons why in the space there may be some of the OG wallets and services in the space, like blockchain.info, now blockchain.com, probably was one of the big factors behind that big jump in SegWit that we saw because they just literally have millions and millions of users. And when they flipped on SegWit on their side, it just massively moved the needle. Yeah, I think they had a, there was a commit that people were able to see in their GitHub repo sometime in like I can't recall exactly, but maybe March, April of of last year, um, showing that they were actually either deploying or getting close to deploying SegWit on their wallets, and that that lines up really well here. They had I I don't know what it is, but 20, 30 million you know users. So um, exactly, I don't I don't actually I didn't confirm that it was them in this report, but um, you know we all follow that on social media for sure. Yeah. So the other aspect is because wallets are trying to estimate when they're going to get confirmed, they're having to look at, oh, hey, what's top of block right now? And if enough other people on the margin start using these techniques, then even a, you know, a small change like on that margin can really bring down the fee overall. And I think maybe that's part of what's happened here, right, with the SegWit plus the batching, which we'll get into, right? Yeah, absolutely. And also, and I didn't talk about fee estimation. I probably should have in this report. Um, Even now in in Bitcoin Core uh, 23 that was just released like yesterday, there's an enhanced fee estimation tool or the fee estimation tool in that wallet is upgraded um, to be more effective. We've seen significant, I mean, certainly since 2017, most wallets have basically no fee estimation or just max fee estimation. And that probably accounted for a lot of the high spiking fees at the end of 2017 also. Clearly, that's improved a lot too. I didn't I didn't talk about that in the report. It's kind of hard to sort of, without you know breaking into all the wallets and yeah. looking at their fee estimation capabilities, but the, it's, object, it's, it's anecdotally, but also um, observably improved. Yeah. And I think the other thing is the narrative historically was, oh, we're going to see every time there's a big price spike, we're going to also see a big fee spike. And I think this is one of the crucial points where in your report, you spelled out, actually, this is one of the first few times where we did not see that. Yeah, it's basically the only run to an all time high going back to 2013, where we didn't where that all time high in price wasn't accompanied by a fee spike. Now, actually, it almost looks like the fee spikes during each of those successive all-time highs have sort of been getting smaller and smaller, like the height of the spike of fees. But I mean, even in June 2019, I think when we were in uh, San Francisco for Bitcoin 2019, um, there was a nice healthy run up to about 13,000 in BTC USD, and there's a fee spike. I mean, you can yeah. see it on the chart, like it, it, they go up and and then sort of all through 2020 to like mid 2021, it's not a dramatic fee spike, but there's a sustained bid in the fee markets. Um, and then just recall, people were like, oh my God, people stopped using Bitcoin. People, some of the criticism I got for this was like, well, people like they got wrecked in May 2021. They stopped using it. I'm like, guys, we we went to another all-time high all throughout the fall. There was huge usage and you know, an investor demand all throughout the fall. We made new all-time highs in November. That was the only time, yet fees didn't spike. And there's a you know, another criticism I got in this report from another uh, blockchain analytics company. They said, well, well, retail interest fell off a cliff, and you can see that in transaction count, for example. And, and I talk about this, you actually can't see that in transaction count. If we take away op return transactions, which I, I personally do not count to be retail transactions, typically most users, unless you're just posting something on the blockchain for fun, um, which I've done, right? But you're not sending a ton of arbitrary data transactions, right? These are things like Tether or open timestamps um, or other applications that use Bitcoin as a data store. If we remove op return transactions, transactions are exactly basically where they were in 2019 and 2020. It's, the, you know, they're slightly below the giant run of, you know, the post-Fed, post-Paul Tudor Jones, fastest horse, you know, era of 2020 and 2021. There's Sure, they're slightly below, but, you know, we've had plenty of other times with 
huge price runs and block space being totally full with the same transactions, right? And the same number of transactions. And and we can explain why that is. But so I don't think there was a decline in demand, really. I mean, sure, there was a little bit of one after we peaked in November. But in, in the end, I think it really it comes down to a more efficient use of block space. And that's good for everyone, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah. And one other area, just to talk a little bit about the historical aspects of it, as I understand, during those big fee spike type or you know price movement times, we would see traders trying to move coin in and out of or across exchanges. And typically because they really want to get the coin either on or off or across exchanges, maybe they were the ones playing paying top of block and therefore they, you know, maybe now some of that is being done with stable coins and maybe some of that is just you know, uh, done in a different way. So I'm curious whether you see any impact of that. Yeah, that's a that's a fantastic point. I mean, prior to maybe 2019, Bitcoin um, was the sort of reserve trading asset in the crypto ecosystem, right? I mean, certainly up through 2017, I mean, you needed to move Bitcoin. Every single person who wanted to trade some other crypto or participate in an ICO had to buy Bitcoin and send that Bitcoin somewhere, right? And that, that does reduce demand for Bitcoin on the network and moving around really fast by these traders. Another factor I think that, that plays right into your point, Stefan, is that exchanges, the spread between exchanges has become much tighter. So one of the reasons you were sending Bitcoin all over the world all the time, if you were an active trader, uh, is to arbitrage these price discrepancies. The markets become much more liquid and much more, um, and the market structures become much more mature. Um, there's also other ways to express your view on Bitcoin than simply, you know, doing what Sam Bankman-Fried basically did and and Suzu, which was like crazy amounts of arbitrage across exchanges. So that probably also does, um, in a time of big price increases, also um, lessen the sort of need to use Bitcoin for that purpose. Right. Yeah. And. I think the other big one, as as you mentioned in the report, is batching. So can you tell us a little bit about what kind of impact do you believe uh, transaction batching has had for the ecosystem there? Yeah, I think it's really big. I, I'm personally torn. I think I made SegWit 1 and 2 in this report. SegWit and batching, the first two things I talked about, I did put SegWit first. Um, I'm not sure. It's kind of hard to know without a lot more work. Um, could probably be figured out. But I'm not sure which is more impactful in terms of freeing up block space and therefore reducing fees. But transaction or payment patching is absolutely extremely impactful. Um, there's a phenomenal piece um, that Bitcoin Optech put out called Scaling Bitcoin Using Payment Batching. Recommend everybody check that out. They even made a calculator where you can play out different scenarios and compare the amount of savings on fees per payment fees you would get by batching. So you can say like two inputs and 10 outputs and whatever, right? And and get this fascinating thing. But the fact is just to back up, right? I mean, a Bitcoin transaction consists of inputs and outputs and one input, every input, you know, one input has to be completely spent. The inputs have to be destroyed, right? So if I send you five, five Bitcoin, I want to send to Stefan one Bitcoin, well, I'm going to have to destroy that five Bitcoin UTXO as an input and we'll have two outputs. We'll have one to Stefan with the one Bitcoin I intend to pay him and another output returning the four Bitcoin to me as change. Those are two outputs, right? And we can call those payments. Those are the actual payments. Now, theoretically, we would always want to remove one from the count of outputs to call payments if we assume there's a change transaction. And Interestingly, you know, you don't have to pay out that change transaction and you shouldn't actually to the input address, right? It, it should be to yet a different address that you also control. That's better for privacy. But it's shockingly a ton of uh, probably exchanges, I'm assuming, tons of people just pay right back to the input address they already control. And so it's very easy to remove like known change outputs from this Uh, when you do this analysis, because you can literally say like, if the input is identical to one of the outputs, then that output is guaranteed basically to be a change output. I guess not guaranteed, but a high probability. So with batching, what we're saying is, especially if you're an exchange, take this um, or a business or or just a really savvy user, maybe you pay your employees in, in Bitcoin. And so you send a lot of Bitcoin payments, right? You actually save significant space in your transaction and therefore in the block and therefore 
on the per payment fees. If you have many outputs, right, and and you aggregate a bunch of your payments into one transaction, and and just for a data point here, what Bitcoin Optech found was that by adding just four more receiving entities, right, four four more outputs to your tip to a typical transaction, which we'll say is like one input and two outputs, right, that that will save the spender more than sixty percent in fees per each of those payments, right? If we think about fees as a per payment metric rather than a per transaction metric, it's highly efficient. And so you can, and and saving on, the reason you're saving on fees is because you're saving on space. And when you save on space, right, that saves on space in a block and that makes the block usage more efficient and that benefits everyone, right? And it certainly benefits you, the spender, because you pay, you know, a lower per payment fee, but it also reduces the demand for block space, right? Or it creates more more free block space, which lowers fees for everyone. Um, and it literally is like they have a great chart. I really recommend checking that out. But when when we looked at transaction batching usage, you know, it's not bad. Savvy users have been using it a long time. The savvier exchanges and custodians like the Bitgos and the Bitfinexes and the and well, not the Coinbases for a while, but eventually the Coinbases, right? Um, and when we look at the the number of sort of the percent of all transactions by the number of outputs that they have. Right. So we break down all transactions into an analysis of how many outputs they contained, and then we stack them on top of each other. And we have this chart in the in the report. So I consider personally um, anything that has out more than three, three or more outputs to essentially be a batch transaction. Because again, when I just pay you, Stefan, we're just going to have two outputs like from a standard wallet. So it's something more is going on. And if we just look at, you know, batches that have three or more outputs, they're, they're, they spike to like over 50% right around May, June, 2021 of over 50% of all transactions, right? And then that bid on, I guess calling it a bid in trader terms, but that, that usage level has basically persisted. I mean, it's still, it's around 50% today. That's a huge increase from where we were in 2019 when blocks were full and fee spiked in 2017 when blocks were full and fee spiked where the three plus batching maybe in 2017 was about 25%, right? So in a way, we're, we're using twice as much transaction batching as we were uh, in 2017. That has a huge overall impact on, on the freeness of block space. Back to the show in a moment. With Unchained Capital, you can create a multi-signature vault to dramatically increase your security against the risk of theft and potentially some other risks as well. So with Unchained Capital, you can bring two hardware wallets to the website and set up your vault for free. They will hold the third key and be the co-signer. Now, if you need some assistance, they have a concierge onboarding program where you can pay upfront, have hardware wallets sent to you, and you can be coached through that process even if you've never held your keys before. And don't forget, Unchained Capital also offer loans so you can borrow against your coins if you don't want to sell. So that website is unchained.com. And lastly, Brains. Brains are a Bitcoin mining company through and through working on some unique and cutting edge projects. They've got Brains OS Plus. This is firmware that you can install on your ASIC mining machine and it can really bring your efficiency up and you really need to be thinking about it and make sure that the model of Bitcoin miner that you have is supported. You can check that out on the website. Brains also have Brains Farm Proxy, which they've just recently put out. This allows miners to configure parallel usage of multiple pools, reduce data loads, designate backup pools, control aggregated operational management dashboards, and more. Also, if you are using the Brains-operated mining pool, slush pool, you are also getting the benefit of encrypted messaging that prevents hash rate hijacking and secures all data communication between the pool and the miner. That website is brains.com. That's brains with two eyes. Back to the show. Yeah. So summarizing then as exchanges, as the, probably the common example is, let's say that exchange is doing a payout to 50 users in one go, where, whereas historically they might have been doing 50 <laughs> one, one yes. by one transactions. This time they can just do one fat input and just pay out all 50 customers in one hit. Saves a lot of space. It's like a massive saving. And so that batching is really just creating a huge saving in terms of block space, allowing more people to transact on Bitcoin because they're saving all this space. I guess the other one is maybe people doing coin join transactions, which kind of look like a batch, but actually it's just a it's a coin join between five people or however many people. Yep. 
So those are probably the, yeah. So I think those are probably one and two SegWit and batching, probably the most impactful in terms of where we are today and why we have such a low fee. Whereas, you know, some of us, like I used to think having a high sustained fee environment is what will drive the lightning adoption. That's what I used to think. And some of us have to eat a bit of humble pie or eat a bit of crow because, um, you know, it, it we're living now, at least right now, in a sustained low fee environment. So... You know, yeah. let's see. And at the same time, though, I mean, you weren't, it's not like you were wrong, though. I mean, you may have been wrong that that is required to be a catalyst, but lightning adoption is growing enormously, even despite low fees, right? And, and fees are low, but lightning is much faster than an on-chain transaction. It is also, to be clear, much cheaper still, if you can use lightning, than, than even one sat per byte, right? I mean, significantly cheaper. But, you know, the other, I didn't mention this too, BitMEX should also be included in these really good stewards of the blockchain. They were very famous for using batch transactions very early. And that is what it amounts to. I mean, Bitcoin is essentially a public space. What's great is that you have, as a spender, an exchange or a business, you have incentive to use these techniques and technologies. It saves you money. But it also has the effect of improving the quality of that sort of public, you know, public blockchain for everyone else that has to use it. And let's chat a little bit about op returns because this is uh, gets into the whole conversation about what's spam on the blockchain. And, you know, I mean, if we really go back, if people remember one of Eric Voorhees's Satoshi dice, I think actually he might have bought it and then later sold it. But anyway, the point is back in those days, it was like on-chain gambling. And it was obviously it was this is like 2011, 12, 13, around then. And, you know, it was just like a lot of people could look back and say, oh, are you spamming the chain? And this kind of brings up this debate. And some people say, no, it's not spam because they're paying the fee. So, but yeah, so if you could just tell us a little bit about um, how op return use has shaped Bitcoin's history and where it's at today. Yeah. So I, I personally do fall on the side of it's any paying use of, of Bitcoin, any valid transaction that includes a fee sufficient to get mined in a block is is not spam. The whole point of having fees, right, is to prevent spam. So if you're paying the fee, like it can't really, you know, be spam in my view, but there there was a bunch of junk. And Satoshi Dice, I think, was a lot cooler than some of the things we've seen use op return in the scheme of things. That's just me personally. But so I mean you can you can use Bitcoin as an arbitrary data store. And there's some great bots you can follow on Twitter, literal bots, I don't mean, you know, NPCs or anything, um, that will show you and print um, I think from mempool.space, every time an op return transaction is posted, um, which is fun because people use op return like the average user. One of the uses is to post messages on the blockchain, something that will be there in perpetuity. And, you know, this is I, this is literally could be a childbirth or a political message or whatever, right? So you can store arbitrary data. Now, now what this has often been used for is to run applications. I mean, you could even say something, you know, not, not exactly like the type of applications that are run on blockchains like Ethereum, but still sort of, you know, whether it's it's sort of side chains or other types of networks or pegging databases to Bitcoin's proof of work and immutable blockchain. You know, some good examples are, you know, the Omni network, which Tether was initially and originally issued on um, and is still carried on, right? There is still some Bitcoin, some Tether on Bitcoin. It doesn't move around very much, which is what I was pointing out in the report these days. And and almost none of it is issued as a percentage of the total of Tether circulating supply on Bitcoin. But that utilizes the op return field to store data that can then be referenced by the Omni network um, to determine whether or not Tethers are moving, right, or, or issued. Um, another one that was really like, I think really caused a huge spike in the use of of op return was in sort of 2019, there was this network called Veriblock, um, which was basically a different proof of work blockchain. They called it a proof of proof network, but that basically stored hashes of all of its blocks as in, in the op return field. And they like, that was a ton of, of usage of op return. I think probably the majority of op return, I, I, bet, I bet the total number of transactions that have ever used op return were from this period of about two years where this network Veriblock was putting their data on the blockchain, that that has ceased. I mean, so in the scheme of things, OpReturn is about where it was in terms of the amount of transactions that are OpReturn transactions as opposed to pure economic transactions. It's about, a you know, it's a very tiny percentage and it's about at the level where it was prior to this big spike of Veriblock. And look, I mean, I think this is a fascinating use. Another great application that uses OpReturn is open timestamps, which I've always been a really big fan of, which is using Bitcoin as sort of like a timestamping notary. You can prove that, you know, you mail a letter to yourself 
like so that the stamp shows that has your like intellectual property in it so that you can use the stamped postal service thing as a proof that you came up with the idea at the time you did. That's that's what timestamps are, right? They and um, Bitcoin is I mean, if, if I had to pick somewhere to store something literally forever, um, I would probably choose Bitcoin when it comes to uh, if I'm not going to carve it into stone like the pyramids at Giza, then then Bitcoin, I think, is your next best bet for for lasting forever. But but I wanted to remove opportunity transactions partly to get to this question of what is the economic usage, right? When people say, oh, well, fees are low because no one's using Bitcoin, right? Well, is that really true? It's true that th- these applications I'm describing are putting a very small dent in the transaction count of Bitcoin. But when we take those out, we see a, a pretty sustained use of Bitcoin transactions. It's slightly below like the 2021 peak. It's slightly below the one month in December 2017, but it's it's above you know basically all of the bear market um, from 2018 to 2020. It's about comparable to to 2020 and, and 2021. And so um, I just don't really buy the idea that it's because people stopped using Bitcoin that fees are down. And you know I look I mean in transactions they're really just the reality is even if fees are slightly transactions are slightly down now. And, and look we're in like a global macro uncertainty and stuff. It, it wouldn't surprise me if, if usage of all blockchains and all basically everything, you know, goes down a bit during this time anyway. But the fact is what transactions we have there on chain today are far more efficient, are paying fees with far better estimation, right? And they're using scaling technologies that people worked on for years. And and I think that's the way of Bitcoin is, is that we're going to always have, we're always going to be looking for ways to pack in more value for less data. Right. And I mean, I, I agree with your points there. I think one other observation that I might make that potentially a quote unquote bad reason for this could also just be that there's maybe a lot of new users who aren't withdrawing and they're just leaving their coins on the service. And this is like, maybe it's the importance of self-custody and education. Yeah. You know, I, I, I think that's definitely possible. And I'm, what I'm about to say, I want to preface by saying there's a grain of salt here. There's plenty of evidence from the sort of glass nodes and coin metrics is that that coins are coming off exchanges that they flowed in sort of as we first ran up back to the previous all time high at the end of 2020 um, and that they've been sort of coming off exchanges slowly since then. You know, I, I say a grain of salt because on chain attribution is very difficult, right? Identifying what is an exchange wallet and then there's a whole bunch of new exchanges that you may not have attributed. So maybe those coins aren't just going into cold storage. Maybe they're going elsewhere. You know, that's hard. But I think what evidence I've seen would would suggest that's not the case. But I, I totally agree. I mean, look, you, you also have all types of new types of custodians that, you know, the, the Robin Hoods and the cash apps, you know, I don't know how good. As far as I know, those providers aren't really tracking like cash app, right? They're tracking like Coinbase and Bitfinex. And so I think that's definitely possible. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but the other big factor, I think, or maybe small but growing rapidly factor is Lightning Network, right? And so I can see some very clear examples where, let's say some of these games that are allowing people to earn sats or even podcasting 2.0, streaming value, streaming sats, and some of the, the statistics that have been shared by people like Jack from Thunder Games sharing, look, I did, you know, how many dozens of thousands of transactions and how many on-chain, like some tiny fraction. And so you can see at a very high level, you can see where if every one of those transactions went on chain, it's a massive saving. Absolutely. I mean, in a similar way to batching, I guess, theoretically, like this enables a one to many payment. Lightning enables many payments to basically be conducted behind one on chain transaction. And I mean, look, I mean, we just I, I looked at channel opens and, you know, so creations of new lightning channels, as I think a proxy for growth and usage. And, and obviously, we, and I also threw in the active channel count, we can also see a similar growth if we look at the, you know, value of Bitcoins or the number of Bitcoins that are locked in, locked or committed to um, Lightning channels. All of that really starts to spike in 2021 after being pretty flat for a couple of years. But I mean, we kind of know why, right? I mean, like Twitter starts doing Lightning, Strike emerges, um, which makes Lightning a lot easier, you know, in a semi, in a, in a, well, in a custodial sort of manner, but uses Lightning a lot. You see, I mean, obviously El Salvador, I mean, I, there's a mat you can see on the chart, there's a giant spike in creates right around like it starts to rise actually like 
on a consistent basis at the beginning of 2021, but a giant number of channels are opened in right in the middle of 2021, right in this June 2021 time period. That was Bitcoin 2021. That was right when Nayib Bukele announced that they were going to start doing Bitcoin. We know there's a lot of lightning usage in El Salvador, right, with companies like OpenNode and Strike very involved there. So it, it doesn't surprise me that this happened right then. And, and also, it's getting so much easier to use lightning. I mean, it's been leaps and bounds. I, I wasn't. I had the original Casa node, which I think was the first sort of home, like you know, off the shelf Lightning node. It was you know, r- running and managing Lightning channels in the command line is is beyond me, my technical capability in the scheme of things. I could pull it off, but I certainly wouldn't be able to maintain it well. And so, but now with things like Umbrel um, and you know the the Embassy from Start Nine Labs and. And all these other, you know, um, either DIY or, you know, off the shelf lightning applications, let alone awesome applications like Ride the Lightning that make it really easy to sort of have a a user, generic user interface to operate on your your lightning node. It's just gotten a lot easier, right? And and so even if on-chain fees are really low, I mean, lightning has other benefits. And also let alone like Twitter and Square, Cash App has lightning withdrawals now, right? I mean, it's going to start being pretty big. Bitfinex, again, was extremely early with this. So kudos to them adding lightning early. But this is a massive scaling technology in the scheme of things. Yeah. And and I think similar to the point you were making earlier about difficulty of attribution, it might also be difficult to attribute how much of a saving are we actually getting from Lightning? Because on one hand, you can sort of, some people saying, oh, look, see, look at the amount of merchant volume happening on the likes of coin cards or bit refill, where maybe there's not as much Lightning volume compared to just on-chain or, you know, shitcoin transaction volume or stable coins. But on the other hand, we are starting to see more and more services plug in and turn it on, right? And they are starting. And some of these services have literally millions of users, right? So obviously Bitfinex are early, Kraken have millions of users, Cash App have probably 20 or 30 million users, Robinhood are turning it on, uh, Chivo has probably four or five million users. Like we're talking like, you know, probably upwards yeah. of 50 million here. It's really sizable. And, and you know, one point, um, two points I wanted to make. One, um, when you think about El Salvador, um, one of my sort of sleeper, um, really bullish things I think that can come out of El Salvador is that the you know, and, and it's not as widely adopted as as you might think if you visit there. But in like San Salvador and certainly in Bitcoin Beach and El Zante, it's everywhere, right? And it's 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 expanding out. But you know, under the the Bitcoin uh, as legal tender law, certainly the major international retailers and corporations in say the capital, they all have to accept Bitcoin. I'm talking Starbucks and McDonald's. And I know for a fact that several of them accept Lightning, right? And what they might find, I think that's this is one of these sort of low-key bullish things that might come out of El Salvador is that they might say, wait a second, forget the fact that we had, were required to accept this. This thing is great to accept. There's no chargeback fraud. It, it's literally faster than a credit card, right? Like a Lightning payment is nearly instantaneous. Anyone who hasn't done it, do it. You're going to be truly stunned at how fast it is. And it's faster than swiping and waiting for processing card approved. They might find that there's significant benefit and now they've just had franchises in, that have learned how to do it and they've had partnerships with companies to help them do it. And so you might actually see acceptance of Bitcoin over Lightning leak out of El Salvador through these sort of multinationals that have now all this data on how useful it is. Um, the other point on attribution that I wanted to make to uh, along the same lines with you, Stefan, is that um, we can't really see into Lightning channels, right? Maybe if you're a highly connected node, you can get a lot of insight into how much activity is actually happening. But Lightning is not a blockchain. There is no like public database of, you know, the transactions people are doing. You know, when I talk to, you know, big Lightning operators, they tell me that they turn over their capital if they're a highly connected node a lot, right? So you might only see five Bitcoin between, you know, 2.5 and 2.5 in a channel on either side of a channel. But if they're highly connected routing nodes, they're passing a lot more than that in volume. So it it could be, you know, I I would take the total, uh, you know, amount of, Bitcoin locked in lightning um, metric with a big grain of salt for that reason, because this is working capital in many cases. So it turns over quickly. And then the other reason, of course, is that there is not really a lightning network, right? There's a, a series of overlapping bilateral payment channels. You and I can set up a channel right now and not make it public in any way, right? So there's there's certainly a lot of folks using Lightning in a non-public way where we really can't see much about it. We can still see channel create stuff because we can find those today on the blockchain uh, itself. We can sort of infer that they are, although even that um, could be obfuscated in the future with uh, the use of new technology. 
Right, yeah. And so I, I still remain bullish on Lightning. I think it, it just will take some time. I think it's important to remember that it's still early, right? Like Lightning mainnet was only, what, four years ago, 2018? So, you know, in if you look at where Bitcoin was only four years into it, you, a lot of people could be like, oh, yeah, there's not that much going on there. Um, but actually, it really is growing a lot. So, yeah, that's interesting to me. Uh, and the other big factor you mentioned in the report is around reduced miner selling. And you had a really interesting um, analysis around one-hop addresses. So could you just explain a bit about this methodology? Yeah, absolutely. So um, when we try to figure, this is always a question that investors are asking, like, oh, our miner, miners you know, generate a lot of coins. Some of them have a lot of coins. So whether they're buying or sorry, whether they're hodling or selling is you know, really of interest to a lot of people. Coinmetrics did a lot of good work on this. Actually, Kareem Helmy in particular did a lot of development on developing their miner metrics. But in general, Coinmetrics is excellent. The team there, they have a bunch of great ideas about how to look at blockchain data. What they came up with as, look, we could go around and we could say, for one reason or another, we think this is ant pool or we think this is slush pool, these addresses, right? That's sort of a classic um, sort of chain analysis style attribution methodology. Um, and they went a different way, which I really like. It's instead, we can see Coinbase transactions. We know the lower C Coinbase transactions, right? Newly minted Bitcoins. And we we can say, okay, well, to what address is that being paid, right? That's the miner, right? And and actually, no, not in the, yes, but, but no, because in today's world, very few miners are self-mining. They're almost all using pools. So actually that payout is usually going to a pool. And then the idea is that the the next payout is probably the pool paying out the miner. So that's what we look at as the best, I think, heuristic for miner activity is the address one hop from the mining pool. And we look at changes in and flows to and from those addresses in order to those one hop addresses in order to assess how much miners are earning in Bitcoin or how much miners are sending Bitcoin. Of course, we have to use the heuristic here. If they send the Bitcoin, we assume it's being sold, but it, it doesn't have to be, obviously. But anyway, when we look at that data and we have this in the report also, um, we find that, you know, it, it's it, it's not at its lowest point ever. The flows out out of those one hop addresses, but it's basically at the lows, you know, back to 2013 in the amount of Bitcoin leaving those addresses. And this actually makes a lot of sense. If you think about what happened um, in China, right, we had a huge crackdown. A lot of those miners operated on thin margins. They were well known for selling a lot of coin. They were probably less ideological overall than um, although, and I don't want to sell them short, there are plenty of like diehard hodling Bitcoin miners in China, no doubt. But my view is that they've generally, they were probably generally less um, ideological. And so they, they were more apt to sell their coins. Um, and, and of course, all miners typically have to sell coins in order to fund their operations. Following that crackdown in China, right, there was a period where miners were sort of in flight and it wasn't sure. But then there was this huge sustained bid for mining machines from the United States, because we have a lot of abundant, efficient, inexpensive, and in many cases, sustainable energy sources. It's a great, and we have better property rights than China, right? You're not likely to have your entire industry rugged, you know, sort of arbitrarily by a, a committee of people. And so, and then we saw the rise of these now large public mining companies in the United States. And a lot of those machines made it over to the United States. And, and now like Foundry, I think is the largest pool by hash rate, a US mining pool. I think all available evidence says the U.S. is the largest share of hash rate uh, of any nation. What's interesting about that is that these public miners, many of them have pledged or had pledged to not sell their Bitcoin. And, and, and you say, well, how can you fund your operations if you don't sell your Bitcoin? Well, they were tapping capital markets, U.S. capital markets. There's an enormous amount of, of, de uh, of debt sold and money raised um, by issuing debt to U.S. capital markets investors. And there was a lot of equity sold, right? So they, they, were, they were capitalizing themselves by selling debt and equity rather than selling Bitcoin. And so it makes sense to me that we would see less minor activity. And I don't think this is a huge reason in the scheme of things for why block space isn't as full. But I do think uh, because, you know, we're talking about a miner is going to probably sell on a regular cadence. So they're going to be the source of a regular number of transactions sent on the network. But it's still not that many transactions, not like a giant spike in user demand would cause. But it is another reason why I think transactions have been depressed. Yeah, really fascinating stuff. And as we were saying, I think probably one and two is SegWit and batching, but I'm, I think Lightning over the years to come will be a big, big factor also in um, keeping those fees low and keeping it accessible for people. Um, so I guess I'm curious, looking 
forward do you have any thoughts on what might cause a fee spike like do you think it's just going to have to be like a massive influx like a 10x or 100x in the users oh that's a great question you know i don't think it has to be that big necessarily but i do think that um you know demand for block space has to go up in order for fees to go up demand's not that low in the scheme of things but it's you know this is one of these um, very binary questions like are blocks full if no like pay lowest fee unless you know i mean some people are still paying a little bit of a higher fee because sometimes you know the lowest possible fee is going to be like two or three blocks instead of one block for me that's almost always fine right and and for an average person but if blocks are full like the calculus immediately changes right and you start to see that fees can go high very quickly just with blocks being full you don't need even necessarily a giant backlog it's not clear that it a 10 or 20 uh, block backlog in the mempool is going to cause is going to have lower fees than a, a hundred block backlog, like full or not, in my view, is mostly a binary question. I think you're going to see more use of things like lightning, which put additional um, opens like a rapid onboarding of people into lightning will will, will add a lot of blocks. Um, We'll, we'll take up a lot of block space. I think other applications, I mean, I, I think we will see Bitcoin used as, you know, you'll see side chains, you'll see pegs. Maybe this is the old school person in me here, but I, I still, you know, I think Pete Rizzo's piece on this was really good when he talked about there's sort of people who are monetary maximalists versus platform maximalists and network maximalists. I, it's obvious that, you know, as a narrative for the use of Bitcoin um, as purely a monetary asset that doesn't need to also be a platform upon which to build, it's obvious that that is, you know, the most popular and common view of Bitcoin today. And of course, I also believe Bitcoin is, you know, an immutable, non-sovereign sound money and that that alone is a massive use case. But um, I do think we'll start seeing Bitcoin used more as a platform over time. Um, and, and there's a bunch of interesting stuff. People are thinking about that. That'll cause more sustained demand for block space too. But also just, again, still a very tiny number of people actually really own Bitcoin. I mean, right, in compared to the world, I mean, it's it's the largest it's ever been, but, you know, the estimates I've seen are maybe like 100 to 200 million people. I mean, there's a lot more people to onboard and I don't actually think Bitcoin can scale in its current form to take 6 billion people, right? And so, and and when it comes to block space and fees, that means we'll, we'll certainly run up against high fees in, in full blocks again, um, and, and you know what, with Bitcoin, it always surprises you that that'll probably be sooner than we think. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's a great spot to finish up there. So Alex, where can people find you online and uh, any, I guess, closing thoughts for the listeners? Yeah, no, uh, thanks so much to You can follow me on Twitter at intangible coins, um, read our research at galaxydigital.io slash research. And um, it's great to be here, man. Fantastic. Thank you, Alex. So what do you think? What factors are most important? Was it SegWit, batching? And how important do you think Lightning is in terms of reducing the fees? Also, get the show notes at stefanlevera.com slash 370. Thanks for listening, and I will see you in the Citadels. Mm-hmm.